Laodicea. It's the lukewarm church that has grown tepid, the church that is proud and self-satisfied. All its wealth is an empty claim, an illusion. She has ever had many sisters. In this letter, no threat of judgment is mentioned beyond, I will spew thee out of my mouth, which is certainly ample. The gospel call and promise that would awaken intense fervor fills this letter. Is amen a pagan word? When Jesus said he was the beginning of the creation of God, did that mean he was the first creation of God? Can we say we love Jesus and be indifferent about spending time in the Word and prayer? What is the worst kind of hypocrite? What does it say about your conversion if you're lukewarm? Should we continue to repent after salvation? Can you imagine sitting with Christ in His throne? I want to know. We would like to welcome each and every one of you to this week's episode of The Doctrine of Christ with myself and Brother Jimmy Cooper. And we're so honored to do so because whether you know it or not, the doctrine of Christ is the most important thing in your life. And we're so thankful for all of you that are joining us in this study. And Jimmy, it's good to be back again. It's great to be here. You know, I got to think that most of these, uh, most of the people who watch these uh, episodes, I think they are getting to get it that the doctrine of Christ is the most important thing. I know it is mine. (laughs) Every episode, more people are getting that realization. That's why it's so exciting. And once you understand the doctrine of Christ, you're forever changed. Your life is And that's what Jesus is about, changing lives in the very, very, very best of ways. And our study this evening, we will be studying the last of the letters to the seven churches, the letter to the Laodiceans. And we're going to entitle this episode, Three Cities on Seven Hills. Now, let's begin in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, many people, when we talk about the city upon seven hills, Rome is the city that immediately comes to mind. And I'll read from Matthew Henry's commentary. And Matthew Henry's commentary on this letter begins like this. To the angel of the church of Laodicea, this was once a famous city near River Lycus and had a wall of a vast compass and three marble theaters and like Rome was built on seven hills. It seems the apostle Paul was very instrumental in planting the gospel in this city. And Many people know that Rome is the city upon seven hills, but few people today knew that Laodicea was a city upon upon seven hills. In the Bible times, it was common knowledge. Today, not so much. What about Jerusalem? Is it on seven hills? 
It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 9, that's our three cities. Oh, okay, okay. On seven hills, it's Jerusalem, Laodicea, and Rome. And of course, in the Word of God, nothing is by accident, and there's profound symbolism there. Hmm. And in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 9, and here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And ever since the book of Revelation was first read, the first listeners of the epistle of Revelation, they immediately thought Rome. Uh, in Un's commentary on Revelation, he says this. He says the seven hills or seven mountains was widely used during the late first century B.C., and the first century A.D. and would be constantly recognizable as a metaphor for Rome. Roman writers often use the term Mons Mountain and Colus Hill interchangeably when referring to the seven hills of Rome. So we have Rome on seven hills. We have Laodicea on seven hills. And on the map here, that you're pulling up, we're going to see here that there's a map of Jerusalem on seven hills. And this map here shows the seven hills of Jerusalem. So we have three cities upon seven hills, and nothing in Scripture is by happenstance, and there's deep, profound symbolism here. Now, in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 18, the city here is most definitely Rome. It says, and the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth, present tense, over the kings of the earth. The city that reigned over the kings of the earth when John wrote Revelation, it was Rome. It was Rome, yeah. That's the city of Rome. But there's also another city upon seven hills that's mentioned in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8, and that being Jerusalem. And their dead bodies, speaking of the two witnesses, shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So Jerusalem and Rome and Laodicea. Now, the symbolism of Rome is obvious. The Roman Catholic Church, the leaven, the basic foundation that will bring all of the harlot church together, and the symbolism of the corruption, and Jerusalem in the book of Revelation isn't mentioned in a good light. It's spiritually called Sodom, and, and the Egypt. defilement that came from the Talmud and the Kabbalah leavened into the modern-day church is huge. So it's easy to see the symbolism of Jerusalem on seven hills and uh, Rome on seven hills. So what would Laodicea represent? And it's just obvious that Laodicea represents the apostate Protestant church that is coming back to Rome. And these are the three factors, the leaven of Judaism, the leaven of Roman Catholicism, and the apostasy of the Protestant movement 
that are going to come together, these three cities on the seven hills, they are profoundly influential and their coming together will be the emergence of this final harlot that we see riding the beast in the book of Revelation. Now, did, was, do you have something you want to say, Jimmy? No, just just taking it all in. All right. Now this, and in Laodicea, it's so plain. And the Apostle Paul said very clearly, Second Timothy 3 and 5, having a form of godliness and denying the power thereof. And we don't want to miss the last part of that, from such turn away. And in this church of Laodicea, and it is the perfect picture of the apostate Protestant church to a T. And the Bible says to turn away from it. And the lukewarm profession of this church so repulsed Christ that the warning here, you don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it because this warning of being spewed out that we're going to read um you know, he ain't playing. He ain't playing. Now, in Revelation chapter 16, we see the threefold spiritual dynamic here again. And we have these three cities upon seven hills, and they represent three strains of demonic defilement. And in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 13, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And it's the religious miracles and the, the miracles are done. There's two beasts in the book of Revelation. The first beast is a military leader. The second beast is a religious leader. And it's not the military leader that does the miracles. It's the religious figure. Mm. And these three unclean spirits that are doing miracles, they come forth from these three cities on seven hills out of apostate Catholicism, out of Christ rejecting Judaism, which is the spirit of Antichrist rejecting Christ in the flesh, and from apostate Protestantism, which I think was more disgusting to Christ than those that would openly reject him. Yeah. Uh, he, he had less um, less use for that. And in Revelation chapter 13, and here's one of the things that is so concerning to me and I know to you also and we've talked several times and we can't emphasize enough the uh, relationship of Kenny Copeland and the big biggest of the big charismatic leaders with Rome he had Pope Francis on the big screen of his conference and of course the charismatics they're big on their miracle crusades They'll say, uh, you know, and uh, one guy, it was um, more Sorello. One of his conferences, he said, the first 100 people that send in the money, you'll get a miracle from God. You know, like, yeah, Morris, have a conference. 
and uh, you tell them the first hundred people send their money and I'll do a miracle for them. I mean, really? And the charismatics, boy, miracle crusade, miracle this, miracle that, the Catholics, miracles, their apparitions of Mary, all hey, of these things. They're really good about making one leg grow out to be even. They I see that, that that one happen all the time. <laughs> yeah, they're they're good at that one. There's a lot of little stunts that they do. And and you know, and a lot of it it's just chicanery. It's just chicanery and sleight of hand. And a lot of it is going to be genuine demonic miracles. Yeah. David, I just have to think that these guys doing this kind of stuff, I don't think they believe the Bible at all. I think this is just a profession they've chosen. They don't think any of this is real. I mean, how else would can you explain willfully doing dece deceiving things? The, the Bible tells us about all the judgment that's going to come down on false teachers. Why would you even risk that? The only way you would risk it is if you don't believe it at all. You're just yeah. You're just making them. That, that's your job. That, that's what you chose. You're an entertainer. And I um I think with the the high ups, that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's it's awful. I mean, we're at a level now to where if you can't figure this stuff out, you're in a lot of trouble. I mean, you know? I get concerned about our videos, making sure they're not, you know, there's nothing false to the best of our knowledge in anything yeah. we put out because I'm so concerned about um, false teaching. Yeah. You know, and um, in Revelation 13, beginning in verse 11, speaking of the religious beast that Mr. Copeland had up on his big screen, and I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed, which would be the political beast. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do. We've got to beware of religious miracles because these three unclean spirits like frogs, and they'll come from Catholicism, from Judaism, and from apostate Protestantism, that's what will gather the kings together to the final battle of Armageddon, religious deception. And we will see religious fundamentalism fuel the fires of Armageddon. Mm. And I believe, and it was predicted by Albert Pike in his three letters to Giuseppe Mazzini in the 1800s, that the final war would be between Zionism and Islamic fundamentalist. And of course, the Christian fundamentalist concept of Zionism will drive that train. And uh, that's what's going to make it explode. And we kind of had three things there, didn't we? And these three unclean spirits like frogs are going to come together. And um, it, it's what's going to do it. So we want to be aware of that. We want to be aware that in this final letter to the seven churches, there is deception that's warned against, and the only way that we can escape that is to be red hot for Jesus. No compromise, no equivocation, no wiggle room. It's Jesus, only Jesus, 
and nothing else but Jesus. Now, it's interesting that in the epistle to the church at Colossae, in um, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16, there is an epistle that Paul talks about that he wrote to the Colossians. Somehow we somehow we can't find it, can we? Or or can we? You want to bet? <laughs> we'll just see you in about... <laughs> I had a feeling. We'll I had just a feeling see you'd about find it. 60 seconds, Jimmy, if we can find it. I bet we can. Now, in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16, it says, And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, we have the epistle to the Laodiceans, and it has to be classified as apocrypha. Uh, you can't prove that it is this letter, and you can't prove it's not. But there's a lot of early church tradition that would verify that it is. But, you know, the Bible has preserved in it what needs to be preserved in it. But in this text, it's very interesting, and there's only 20 verses to the epistle of Paul to the Laodiceans, just 20 verses. I don't see a thing wrong with it. And when we read this, it has the ring of authenticity, because when Paul founded the church in Laodicea, he founded it, and it was set on good ground, and he gave them warnings. And the warnings he gave them was because of the condition of the city and just the way the city was. But let's read a couple verses from this, uh, the epistle of Paul to Laodiceans. Verse 10 says, Therefore, dearly beloved, as ye have heard in my presence, so hold fast and work in the fear of God, and it shall be unto you for eternal life. And for the rest, dearly beloved, rejoice in Christ and beware of them that are filthy in lucre. Now, that was the warning Paul gave them. Beware of them that are filthy and lucre. And it, that's, that's the warning Jesus gave them, too. <laughs> yeah. And it appears that they did not pay heed to that and that that was their downfall. Mm. And uh, it's amazing. So that really has a ring of authenticity to it because that fits so much with the epistle that we have from Christ to the church at Laodicea. What, now, what, do you, what do you think about the reason why he wanted them to read each other's letters? Did he see a little bit of that in in the church, the, the Colossian church as well? Yes. And we'll, we're going to read in the epistle to the Colossians that the same problem, and Colossae was just about 30 miles from Laodicea, mm. 30, 40 miles. And they had the same problem there 40 years earlier. And they were close together, and I'm sure they were cross-pollinating this heresy there. So absolutely, they were close together, and they were dealing with similar problems. Okay. And one of the reasons the, the church in Laodicea was tremendously, and the city was wealthy, uh, there was a major earthquake there. And they didn't even take any relief money from Rome. They rebuilt it from their own treasury. And one of the things there was a medical school, and we'll read some documentation on it. And they made an ISAB that was famous all over the world. And they produced so much of this that this was one of the big reasons for their wealth. And, of course, we're going to read a text with an allusion to this ISAB. And... Um, 
it it is uh, just very, very interesting to me. And in this epistle, Christ is introduced by the title that he is the Amen. And um, in the Hebrew movement, and this is one of the three cities on seven hills, the defilement that comes from Talmud and Kabbalah. And one of the things that just heats my beans up is when they will say that amen is a pagan word. Have you ever heard that one? I have heard that. That amen, that comes from Amun-Ra, and amen is a pagan word. And you need to say amen, a Yiddish word, instead of amen. That is so much of a demonic lie. And Robert Thomas, and you see what it is, it's a demonic trick to get you to lay your Bible down. Oh, you say amen, amen's in your Bible. That's pagan, that's dirty, your Bible's defiled. Put that down and here I got one for you, the latest Hebrew root doodah Bible. That's what you need to get, you see. So it's a satanic trick to get you to believe your Bible's defiled and throw it down. And it's even worse than that. It's not only blaspheming the word of God, but, and Robert Thomas points out here, he says the first title, whole amen, the amen, is used only here as a personal name for Christ. So you are blaspheming not only the word of God, but Christ himself. This is his title there, the amen. This is just some more of that leaven from the city on the seven hills that is just flowing out and uh, it's just a rolling and a flowing. From everything I've looked it up, it just mean it means truth. Yeah. You know, he's saying I am truth. Yeah. And it was That's a Hebrew exactly. word. I mean, I'm sure this is is the way we say it. Is that just the English transliteration, or was it that the actual Hebrew word as well? I think it's pretty much a transliteration. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And William Perkins had this to say. Amen is a Hebrew adverb of asservation, signifying as much as verily, truly, or certainly. The title is given to Christ. So careful, careful when you start blaspheming the word of God and blaspheming Jesus Christ because you're following after some false teacher that wants you to think he's clever and has more truth than the word of God. He goes on to say, and I love this comment. Boy, do I love this guy. He says he is a true witness because he speaks the truth according as everything is in itself without error, deceit, or falsehood. For that which he receives from his father, which is the rule of all truth. Everything Jesus said, and that's just the doctrine of Christ, isn't it? He is the amen. He's the faithful and the true witness. Everything he said is true. And I just love that guy. Over and over again, he brings it back to the clarity of Jesus Christ. And everything he said is true because he was saying what the father said and how many times we've said that. And I love to find somebody else saying that, too, because we weren't we aren't the first people that's done this. But uh, in this Laodicean church age, which I think would not be a 
a bad way to refer to this, that uh, there certainly is too much of that. Now, he is called also in this first verse. Boy, there's a lot of stuff in this first verse. Yeah, there is. And he's called the beginning of the creation of God. And R.H. Charles says that this means he is the active principle in creation. The sovereign Lord over all creation. I really like that. That really nails it. I've heard I've heard people say, see that right there? That means he was the first thing created. Yes. And this is another thing that is rampant within the Hebrew root movement. And probably Jehovah's the Jehovah's Witnesses, Witness, right? Jehovah's Witnesses. And the uh, this is the old Arian heresy from the uh, the old early church heretic, Arius. And let's establish it real clear in the mouth of three witnesses from the word of God that Jesus Christ is not created. He is the creator. In John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1 and verse 2, and I'll just read the first two verses. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Jesus is the creator. And in the epistle to the Colossians, and as I mentioned earlier, the Colossians had the same problem that was dealt with in Laodicea, and they were very close together. And as we read in the text that the letter to Laodicea was read in Colossians, the letter from Colossians was read in Laodicea. And in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, it also unequivocally states Jesus Christ as the creator. And of course, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost all had part in creation. In the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. Colossians 1.16, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. There is a difference between the creator and the creation. And that's the problem. When you worship the creation along with the creator, that's when the creator starts having some problems with you. So this is a text that has been perverted and twisted to try to say that Jesus Christ is a created being and it it says nothing of the sort. The word of God is clear that that is indeed a lie and it's a very old lie. And it's repackaged by a lot of different groups. And uh, the most common in our day and the Hebrew root movement is giving the Jehovah Witnesses a run for the money on this. There's really a lot of this out there in that. Now, in uh, Colossians 1.15, let's read this. And here is another text that these people use to try to intimate that 
Jesus Christ is not God. And like the Jehovah Witnesses do in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, was with God, and the Word was a God, or a secondary created God. And in Colossians 1, 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? And they'll say, looky there, he was born, you know, and of course, in the incarnation, John 1, 14, the word became flesh. He was born. The eternal word became flesh. He was born in his incarnation. But they want to say that Christ did not exist at a point in time. And then he was born. Now, in a book that I spent a lot of time with back in the 80s, The Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. And he has a very good comment here in a little section, does a great job on refuting the witnesses' uh, false doctrines. But he says this. He said, the word firstborn, protokos, refers not to the first one created or born, but to the one who has the preeminence or right to rule as an heir has the right to rule over his predecessor's estate. The same term is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 25:33, where Esau actually sells the right of the firstborn to Jacob because he is hungry. And Jacob wasn't the firstborn physically, but he had the right of the firstborn. It means you are the preeminent one. You are the one that has the right to the blessing. It says it is also used in Exodus 4.22 by Jehovah regarding Israel as his firstborn nation, the nation that receives the blessings of his kingdom. So this text also is just absolutely not saying anything that these folks says that it does. And in Psalm 89.27, and this is one of the many texts that we could read in this regard, but this is a good one. And in Psalm 89 and verse 27, also, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. And of course, this is talking about the Messiah. And the father is saying, I will make my pre-existent Messiah the firstborn, and he'll have the preeminence. Jesus is the firstborn of everything. He is the head. He is the most preeminent of everything, of the church, of the whole creation. He is king of king and lords of lords, the creator. And the word of God goes out of its way to make this plain. And the devil goes out of his way to solve this. Every heir that we encounter is a diminishing of Jesus Christ in some way. Every, we got a tearing down a little bit. Yeah, he's a good guy, but you just can't believe everything he got. He, he says, you know, he said this, but it could be that. No, it couldn't. He's the faithful and the true witness. And whenever Satan succeeds in getting us to buy into some idea that will denigrate Christ like he's defiled or wrong or has even a taint of error in him. Satan is having his way with us and having his way with us big time. Now, 
Let's read another text in the book of Colossians. And in Colossians, let's read verse 18. And there are different nuances, a way that this is phrased. And Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And that in all things he might have the preeminence because he is the firstborn from the dead. He is above all things. Now, the firstborn from the dead. Let's have Ellicott's comment on that in Ellicott's commentary. And he explains it this way. And it's very good. He says in Romans 1, 3, he speaks of Christ as declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is, so to speak, his second birth, not in the sense that the Copenhagens, that's Kenny Copeland and Kenneth Hagen, the Copenhagens, they say that Jesus was born again in hell, but Jesus was begotten in a new realm of glory when he was exalted to the right hand of the Father, and as we have been studying, when he sat down on the throne of David at the right hand of the Father, it's King of King and Lords of Lords. And that's what it means when Romans 1 and 3, he is said to be declared to be the Son of God with power, that he is the first begotten from the dead. His resurrection is the first of many of his, he is the elder brother of many that will follow because of our faith in him. He's the first begotten of the dead. The beginning of that exaltation, which is contrasted with his first birth on earth in great humility and of his entrance on the glory of his mediatorial kingdom. And what the devil wants to confuse is that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word has always been from the very beginning. That word was made flesh, John 1.14. The word was made flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten Son of God. And then when he was resurrected from the dead, this day he has been declared with power to be exalted to the right hand of God, for he is the head of the preeminent over all things. But none of that, neither his birth at Bethlehem nor his begotten again from the dead to the right hand of the Father, neither of that was the beginning of existence for Christ. It was just a new phase of his glory. And you know, Satan knows all that. I mean, I wonder if Satan will will confess that he understands that Jesus is God and was from the beginning. And I wonder if he would even confess that he understands that he is an actual created thing, that that God actually created him. He's going to have to. I mean, surely he knows. I mean, he was there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he he eventually was there and saw everything and, and was told everything. And he is a liar. A liar. And, you know, this is the hard thing for people to believe, that preachers might lie to them. Hey, real quick, when the, when the Bible says that on that last day, every knee will bow, I wonder if that includes Satan. 
Oh, yeah. And Ever confess. Made. He'll be made to fess up. Yeah. Everybody will confess. Even the fallen powers, they're going to be made to bow the knee. And what were you going to say when I interrupted you there? No, uh, I, you know, just that very thought. Yeah. And um, and John Wesley, he said on this epistle in Colossians, he said, the first begotten from the dead, from whose resurrection flows all the life, spiritual and eternal, of all his brethren. Everything flows from Christ because of his resurrection. He is the firstborn of many brothers that will receive that spiritual and then later the physical resurrection. He says that in all things, whether of nature or of grace, he might have the preeminence. Who can sound this depth and who can? The more we can lift up Jesus. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. But that's our job, is just to get people to see how much the word of God lifts up Jesus as the all-powerful, all-pure, totally trustworthy son of God that has died upon the cross for us and given us the blessed doctrine of Christ, whereby we can learn of all things. You think it's... Um... I don't want to use the word sacrilegious or anything like that, but do you think it's it's weird to uh, consider Christ our, our, like our brother? Because it didn't say he's the firstborn of the brethren, and and I think I've read where where they actually do call him, you know, our brother. Yeah, but it's hard for me to. It's just hard for me to think of him like that. You know what I mean? It's hard to think he might really love us that much. Yeah, but he does. And he actually wants, and in this epistle here, you know, he'll open the door. I'll come in and I'll sup with you, brother. Yeah. Yeah. He really loves us. He really died for us. He really wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to communicate with us, not only him speaking to us, but he wants us to talk to him. He wants us to know him. It is just mind-blowing. Yeah, it is. That the faithful and the true witness. You know, he really does love us. And that that's the fight. We will fight to lift up the word of God. We will lift up the purity and the glory and the majesty of Christ and everything that will come against him to denigrate him and pull him down. We will rebuke it in his holy name and lift him up as the king of kings and lord of lords and all of his power and his glory. And all you need is one glimpse of who Jesus really is. You'll be forever changed. You'll be saved. You'll be set free. And your life will be totally changed in an instant. That's all it takes. Just one glimpse of the master. And um, you Man. will be forever changed. Amen. I'm glad we can say that word. <laughs> and it's not evil or pagan. That's yeah, right. I say amen on, on comments all the time. Amen. I, yeah. Somebody will not. say and something. I'll agree with, with just amen. There's not, I'm like, what else can I say? That's. Yeah. Amen. So be it. And uh, absolutely. And we can say it because Jesus is the amen. Now, let's let's look at another something else here. Let's look at Second Corinthians and let's look at chapter one and verse 20. And this is another great thought. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen to the glory of God. All the promises of God are amen in Christ. Everything that we receive from God comes through Christ. And if we're getting something some other way, it's illegitimate. In Romans 8 and 32, Paul said, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The promises of God are amen in Christ, because the finished work of the cross is where our faith should be, and from that flows everything. There are so many marvelous promises of God, and every promise has a condition. Now, the problem today is they want to present God as a cosmic sugar daddy. That's just passing out things if you name it and claim it. That's not how it works. It works out of relationship, out of obedience. And there's conditions to the promises. And when you meet the conditions, you can claim the promise by faith. And you can pray the word of God before the Father. And you can expect an answer. And God will honor that. All the promises of God are in him, yea, and they are in him. Amen. Now, and boy, it'll take us a while here to get off this first verse, but there's so much here. And when we think about being the beginning of the creation of God, there's two aspects of that. There's the physical creation, and there is the spiritual creation. Not only is Jesus the creator of the physical world, there's, uh, I love it's actually a chorus for a lyric from an old hymn. It says, he came to die on a cross of wood, but he made the hill upon which it stood. And that's a pretty profound thought. He made the wood, too. He did. <laughs> he did. He made the wood also. And in Second Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It's a miracle of creation when we are transformed by the Spirit of God, which happens when we repent and believe the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins. When we believe Jesus is who he said he is, and we're ready to repent and believe that, the Spirit of God will transform us. And it's a miracle of creation. And in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, the text here, no, excuse me, Ephesians 2 and 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are the creation of God. And I love this scripture in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And of course, I just love, just love all of them. But in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, the text says here, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, it's very profound when Jesus is called here the Everlasting Father. And John Wesley said on that phrase in Isaiah 9 and 6 that he is the Father of eternity, who though as man he was then unborn, yet was and his from, yet was and his from all eternity. He is the father of eternity. It's amazing. And in the Geneva Bible, in the authors, in the comments, in the marginal notes in the Geneva Bible, which was the Textus Receptus Bible just before the KJV, William Perkins used the Geneva because he died before the King James Mm -hmm. Bible was printed. God's word was preserved there before it was finally preserved in the KJV. But anyway, in their margin notes, it says the author of eternity. Man, when we think about Jesus as the everlasting father, the father of eternity, the author of eternity, he's the author of everything in the physical world. He is the author of everything in the spiritual world. He is the head of all things, king of kings, Lord of lords, and he loves us in the cross, and he wants to have a relationship with us. We serve a great, great, mighty Jesus that he is just everything. He is just everything. And as we begin to think and meditate upon how great Christ is, what an insult is it? to say that we know him and that we love him and that we serve him and we are just so indifferent and cold-hearted and sloppy. In verse 15, I know thy works. (laughs) And he does. He knows our works. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, God knows my heart. Yeah, that's probably the problem. He does. He does. That's true. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. David, today I was reading some history on Laodicea, and and I came across something interesting where— one city on one side of it had great, cold, refreshing, natural springs of water, and this city on the other side of them had hot springs that they were famous for. And where Laodicea was, they didn't have very good water. It had a lot of calcium in it or something, and they would always have to clean out. Their, they, they had developed a piping system to get water from these other two cities to their place. But the the thing is, is that the water, their natural water in Laodicea, to a, the, the people who lived there, it, it was saying they got used to it. But if somebody came to that town and drank that, they would spit it out immediately. Because a yep. lot of times, not only did it not taste very good, but it was kind of lukewarm too. It's it's So it's just, it's cool to me how Jesus is using 
some language that they would understand. Yeah. You know, and it directly, because it doesn't even say something about salves. Or we're going to get to yeah, that, I'm sure. We're going to get to the ice and, salves. Which is what, they something they were famous for. Yeah. So that's, that kind of stuff's interesting. It is. And Jesus speaks to the Laodiceans, and he speaks to us in a way we can understand. And uh, when he speaks to you, you know it. And uh, he can do that yeah, because he is the almighty. And it's interesting the way the water was on Laodicea. It was indefensible. They were totally vulnerable in any kind of an attack because all the enemy had to do was sever their their water ducts coming into the city. They had no internal source. So they had it. They were easy to defeat because they could cut their water off real easy. So. These are all things that just really, um, he was really getting in their stuff here, big time. He was really getting in their stuff. Now, Ellicott said concerning this phrase, he said, the heat here is the glowing, fervent zeal and devotion, which is commended and commanded elsewhere. It is, in short, kindled by God and sustained by converse with the divine one. This is the fire of our first love when the zeal of the Holy Spirit burns in us, the excitement, and what an insult. There's nothing more insulting for someone to say that they love Jesus and to just be so indifferent. Well, I haven't read his Bible, my Bible for about six months, but I love him. No, you don't. Just stop lying. You don't love him. And today in the Laodicean apostate church, apostate Protestantism, lukewarm is the standard. Everything they do is to say that lukewarm is okay. And if you are zealous and on far from God, man, they'll throw you out. Yeah. I mean, that'll that'll just nine, 99 times out of 100. That's going to be the way you're going to wind up. They'll just throw your little self out of there because they they can't bear it. Now, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 16, so then because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. That's a very, very stern warning. Now, I know you've been reading little Albert Barnes here lately. Yeah. And let's just crank Albert Barnes out. Let's see what he has to say about this. And I like yeah, and and you know, all of these verses, it's just like Spurgeon said when someone, you know, said, you know, what does this verse mean? And he wrote back and said, This verse means just what it said. Thank you, Charles Spurgeon. Hey, and that just real quick, that reminds me. I read this sermon by Spurgeon on this past Sabbath, and I shared it on my com- community page. And I did a short little video excerpt of a segment of it, and it was called "Nothing But Leaves." What an incredible, convicting sermon that was! Because it, you know it was yeah. talking about that fig tree, and yeah. it, it, it you thought there was going to be fruit on it, but because it had leaves, but then there was none, and just that's almost like this lukewarm yeah and you know when we hear when we're bombarded with the greasy grace once saved always saved uh god won't send you to hell no matter how you live 
message we have constantly. When you read this and Jesus says, I'll spew it out of my mouth. Well, well, what does that mean? Does that mean we're really spewed out? And it means just what it says. And people are afraid to say it. It don't mean nothing good. That's for sure. No. And this is what Albert Barnes said it meant. He says the image is intensely strong and denotes deep disgust and loathing. And remember, we read not long ago a little bit from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God where Jonathan Edwards says, God hates you. He loathes you like a stinking bug. You're hanging over the fire. You know, he God loves of, us in the cross. He wasn't afraid to say it, was he? No. And, you know, the image is intensely strong. It denotes deep disgust and loathing at the indifference which prevailed in the church at Laodicea. And this lukewarm nonsense, it isn't just like God doesn't like it much. He hates it. He loathes it. And it go, Barnes goes on to say, it may be remarked also that what was threatened to that church may be expected to occur to all churches if they are in the same condition and that all professing Christians and Christian churches that are lukewarm have special reason to dread the indignation of the Savior. Yeah, Be afraid. Like, Be very like, afraid. It's like I said last episode or so. You know, I, I definitely can see things in me in all these letters. And, you know, in every church body in town, wherever they're at, there's it's the same way. There's all these in every church. And there's going to be a lukewarm certain amount of people in every church body, at least. But there's also, I believe, probably a remnant in every church body as well. I'm hoping anyway. Yeah. And I, and I hope that, uh, that they will come out. Yeah. You know, and I think that's where we need the to place where, you know, they better come out. Well, listen, if we can, they can. Oh know? yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, that's go It's not going to lift you up. It's going to pull you down. I guarantee you mm -hmm. now. And here's the scripture we talked about earlier. And uh, this is verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich. And we read in the epistle of Paul to the Laodiceans, he warned them about filthy liquor because this was a very rich city. There was, and we'll read a little comment by Robert Thomas about the Jews there that were so wealthy and the Jewish people controlled the trade guilds. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. And there was the ISAB. But they said, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not. They did not know their real spiritual condition. Thou knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They did not understand their own spiritual condition. Frightening. The preacher's homiletical commentary, which is a, it's about 23 volumes put together in the 1800s. It's just got such a breath of fresh air to it compared to the modern Laodicean junk. But this is such a good comment. He said, in a spirit of blind self-confidence. They were so confident in themselves that it blinded them. The repetition implies 
satisfaction in riches. The worst kind of hypocrites, hypocrites without knowing it. The worst kind of a hypocrite is a hypocrite that doesn't know they're hypocrites. Mm. There is no more subtle peril than self-deception concerning our spiritual condition. The self-deception that comes from self-confidence. Paul warned, take heed, he that think he standeth, lest he fall. I want to I want to turn to that and read that. We need to really, this is so important. And overconfidence and haughtiness is, I tell you what, it'll kill you. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. We really must understand that our human capacity for fallenness and failure is always there with all of us. We have to be so understanding that without him, we can't do anything. We're totally dependent on him. And whenever we become self-confident in the flesh, we're headed toward the Laodicean deception. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul said, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. We should constantly examine ourselves to see, are we lukewarm? Are we indifferent? We need to be hot. We need to be red hot Mm -hmm. with no equivocation, no compromise, um, red hot, red hot and sold out for Christ. Um, he got one more here. So good. It says, why should a man repent of his goodness? He may well repent indeed of his falsehood, but unhappily the falsehood. It is, it is just the thinking he does not see and cannot see. The Pharisee did not know he was a Pharisee. And as long as a person thinks they're good, they're not going to repent. And this is indeed the deception we hear, see here at Laodicea. And this is just something that is totally reinforced by the whole greasy grace message. It is just cementing um, the road to hell for the Laodicean church age. Now, in Revelation 3.18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesab, that thou mayest see. And we talked about this, and we'll, I'll read just a little excerpt from Robert Thomas's commentary where he gives a little of the history here. And he says that Laodicea was the seat of a famous school of medicine. And it says Heriopolis, 350 to 250 BC, who advocated that compound diseases required compound medicines for treatment. Now, that sounds like they might have had some good stuff that they were making herbal compounds. And Mm -hmm. this ISAB they had, I'd like to have some of it. You know, I bet it was good stuff. But it's not 
spiritualized salve that they needed. He says a well-known medicine developed by the physicians of this school was applied to the eyes to cure eye diseases, commerce manufacturing, and medicine combined to make Laodicea a wealthy city. And one of the things there was the trade guilds. And it says here, he continues, he says the district in which Laodicea was most prominent in indicates a population of 7,500 adult Jewish freemen, discounting women and children. A reference in the Talmud suggests that the Jews of Laodicea were the apex of ease and laxity. Jews in nearby Hierapolis are known to have been organized into trade guilds. And this is the beginning of what's called operative masonry. And in Freemasonry, there was operative masonry, which was actual workmen that they would work building these big castles. And when you would be an entered apprentice, and you would learn a certain degree of skill, they would give you a handshake. And you could go to a foreman in another city, and of course, there was a lot of different languages, and you could go to a foreman in another city of a job, and you'd give them the handshake, and they'd know what level of skill you had, and what level of pay you deserved. And of course, like um, all working men uh, shouldn't be, but as the case is In reality, they would have like their place where they would gather and they would drink and they would party and do things they shouldn't. And this was the beginning of the lodge where these working men in operative masonry, they would do these things. And, of course, these men from all different religions and there begin to be religious philosophy develop around this. And we can see here the beginning of what developed from operative masonry. And then in 1717, speculative masonry came into existence where the guy down at the grocery store, he could become a mason too, even though he wasn't uh, a builder of uh, a stonemason or something. So this is the very beginning of Freemasonry here, that we see these secret societies and the way that they developed. And it's interesting that this uh, comes about here in what we can see and understand as the the Laodicean church age. And when we talk about gold tried in the fire, uh, let's look at a text here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7. And the text says here, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, may be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And the pure gold is our faith. Our faith is going to be tried that it is immovable. Now, just an example of that. We have faith in Christ. You know, and this happened to me one time, and I was praying with someone, and I said, amen, and they said, oh, you, you shouldn't say that. And I said, you know, well, why? Well, that's a, that's a pagan word. That's wrong. Your Bible's wrong. And, he said, and a lot of people, they don't really know the history of the word. And there's so many things people come up with that we might not know. And they'll try to shake our faith. 
And all of these things are provably lies. But you see, these things come at us and our faith has to be strong, immovable and centered upon Christ and the word of God. That's the tried faith that's pure, that doesn't move. It's focused on the cross, the doctrine, the example of Christ. Immovable. That's the faith that we are to have focused. We've got to have our faith focused. And it says there that the prayer was from Christ that they would anoint their eyes with eyesav that they might see. And so many people they can see with their physical eyes, but they can't see with their spiritual eyes. Now, the people in the occult, they talk about opening the third eye. And they talk about the uh, cosmic consciousness and all of this filth. But the Bible talks about the eyes of our understanding. Every lie of Satan is a ripoff and a counterfeit inversion of the people of the truth of God. And in Ephesians 1.18, I will give our DOC challenge for this week. And I dare, well, I, I don't know if I should say dare, but I challenge you to pray this scripture in Ephesians 1.18, which is a prayer. And let's just read 17 and 18 with it. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It doesn't say we are his, that he is our inheritance. It says he has his inheritance in us. Now, this is just the way with the doctrine of Christ. It talks here about the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. You can say, I, I can, and I'm sure you've done it too. Do you believe in the doctrine of Christ? Of course, everyone say, oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, you, you don't say you don't believe in the doctrine of Christ, but they don't understand what it is. The eyes of their understanding isn't enlightened. They'll say, well, yeah, I believe he was born of a virgin. Well, that's that's good. And, you know, all of these things died, resurrected. That's good. But that's the doctrine about Christ. The doctrine of Christ is those things that he taught. And when that revelation comes, when the eyes of our understanding are open to where we understand that, you're forever changed. When you really see and understand who Jesus really is, just one glimpse, you'll be forever changed. When you understand, just like Brother Perkins said, that he is the faithful and true witness, that everything he said we can trust because it's the very words of the Father, then we've got it. It, it makes me sad to think about. Uh, so I don't I, I've been studying dispensationalism a little bit because just had an interesting conversation recently with, with a dear brother. And so it just made me just want to dive in even, I know what I believe, you know, but sometimes I don't, once I believe something like that, I, it gets kicked out for, you know, as far as <laughs> memorizing all these details, like you do, like you can, you remember all these details about every topic you, you know, Freemasonry and all stuff. But for me, once I, believe something like that i'm like okay got it and then i move on because <laughs> i'm still trying to just always retain the doctrine of christ but i started doing this research and 
you know, some dispensationalists, not all, believe that the words of Christ, the doctrine of Christ was not for them. It's for the Jews. It was still for that Old Testament period, and it's even for the Jews who will be alive in the millennium when they're reigning with Christ, or maybe it's going to be the for them during the Great Tribulation after the church is raptured. I mean, there's just so many things I've been <laughs> finding out, and it's like that doesn't even make sense. But it's still sad to to think that there's a lot of really good people out there, you know, deceived like that. And all of the dispensationalists believe that a certain portion of Christ's teaching is not for the church. And the only thing that really makes dispensationalists different is how many teachings of Christ they allow you to believe. And like your early ones, like Sperry Schaefer and Vernon McGee, Schofield, all of the sayings of Christ, even the Sermon on the Mount we've, we've read from That's Schofield. That's one they pick, say, yeah, it's not for us. Now, today, there are dispensationalists who say, now the Sermon on the Mount, now that's for us, but now Matthew 24, now that's not, because if they admit Matthew 24 is for the church, they lose their preacher rapture. Mm -hmm. And even uh, Bullinger, who wrote the Companion Study Bible, Bullinger is what's called an ultra-dispensationalist. He says that none of the words of Christ are for the church, none of the Gospels, and that only uh, he and he does away with about half of Paul's writings, well, and he winds up with just three or four of Paul's epistles or whatever that's good. He not only does away with the Gospels applying to us, but with most of Paul. So, I mean, that's what differentiates, you know, and when we understand that the Great Commission, let's let, let's just read the Great Commission one yeah, more time. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about, the Great Commission. When he says, go teach them everything I've taught you, starting in, and then what, I don't think it's Matthew, but maybe a Luke version where he says, starting in Jerusalem, and then go to, you know, to work your way out, basically, to the whole world, to all the Gentiles and everything. So yeah. uh, what's that mean? <laughs> yeah. And these people, bless their little hearts, are not even on the playing field. It's about Jesus. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, when we get that. And in Matthew 28, let's read his orders. He said, teaching them in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. According to Jesus, we were to teach everything that he taught and commanded. That's the doctrine of Christ. Yeah. That's what we do. But every dispensationalist falls short of this, all of them. It just matters, uh, and I guess if you're in a dispensationalist church, you just have to call your pastor to ask which verses you can believe. It's nonsense. It's well, utter nonsense. It's oh, demonic, devilish nonsense. I wasn't trying to get you off topic. I just, uh, I'm even thinking that some of this dispensationalism could, could be the reason for this lukewarm situation. Um, that we're reading about. Oh boy, it is. And um, I, uh, I had a comment here very much. And of course, uh, Brother Perkins wrote before the rise of dispensationalism, but he had a quote, and I'll not, 
I didn't mark that to read, but he said basically is the reason for your lukewarmness is that you do not apply the law and the gospel. He said we must apply the law and we must apply the gospel. And he says the reason why you're lukewarm, you don't do it. And of course, when you say, and this is one of the basic tenets of dispensationalism, the law is passed away. We're in the age of grace. There's, and they say that in the, in the law, you know, there's no grace. And my goodness, there was so much grace in the old covenant. They were saved by grace through faith before the cross and after. This is such a big porky. Yeah. It's terrible. It was still grace that, that drew them. Oh, my goodness. It's terrible, terrible, terrible. And the, the reason why that we have to talk about it is because it's sending people to hell. It's causing people to be lukewarm. It's causing people to live sloppy, lukewarm lives. And it absolutely is. I mean, there's no doubt about it. So that's why we warn. We give warning, just like Christ did. You know, uh, if you're lukewarm, you're going to get spewed out. Now, that doesn't mean you won't, just because you don't think you can be, you're going to be spewed out anyway. Now, another really neat verse here, Revelation 3.19. It says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, this is the, the result and the solution to it. Repent. Repent, 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 which we talk about all the time. And there's another very interesting concept here, the chastisement of God. And I know I told you one time that the next time you're out in the woodshed to look, because you'll see I've got my initials carved there. You know, and we all, you know, and and when we'll start to get chastised by God, and and rightly so, we'll feel so bad because we messed up. But you got to understand, he chastises us because he loves us. He loves us. And in the book of Hebrews, and this is a quotation from the third chapter of Proverbs and uh, in Hebrews chapter 12. And in Hebrews chapter 12, it's beginning about verse five. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, Whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. And there are some people that profess Christianity. When I watch certain things they do and certain obvious behaviors that they shouldn't be doing, that if that person does not receive any chastisement, they're not a child of God. Because a child of God cannot persist in doing wrong things without God chastising them and correcting them and convicting them. And, um, and, and if you're not, you're a bastard. And this call for repentance, you know, a sister of ours was telling me once that she was seeing a lot of videos where people are saying, if you repent for anything, 
that's a sin because you've already been saved and you don't need to repent anymore. You're, that's Old Testament, you know, just just coming up with all this stuff. And yet Jesus is saying, repent. And this very thing comes out of um, the Greasy Grace Movement and what they do. And you, we've all heard it, that you're forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future. Now, you don't see that in the Word of God. Now, I'll show you another scripture that if you look at your modern apostate Bibles, every one of them will do a number on this. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, it says this, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Very clearly, when when we ask God to forgive us, he forgives us of our past sins. But when you have a theology that says that God forgives you of your sins, past, present, and future, that's a problem. So if you can't get what you want to teach out of the Bible, just change the Bible. And look at Romans 3.25 in your apostate Bibles. They will change that to get rid of that troublesome little phrase there, just like we've shown over and over where these uh, modern Bibles are changed. We've given many examples, and that's one of them. The Bible does not say that when you are come to be a Christian, you're forgiven of your future sins. And that's why these people are out there. They're saying that you don't have to ask forgiveness for your sins or repent because you've already been forgiven. Don't you know you've been forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future? That's sending people to hell. That's what that's doing. Well, it's true that, that Christ is the propitiation of all sin. Yes. He has paid the price for all sin. Amen. But <laughs> we have to live a lifestyle of repentance and ask him, because of that blood, because of what he did, yeah, you know, we can boldly come, you know, to the throne and, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, the Bible can say that, uh, and over and over, you can see the changes in the Word of God to accommodate this modern Laodicean apostasy. It's a wonder they don't come out with a Bible called the Laodicean Study Bible, based on the new. Latest edition of the Nessalolan text, you know, easy to read, easy to believe, easy to slide your soul right into hell. Well, don't they already have that in it called like the message or something like that? <laughs> oh, that, I mean, they, yeah, the message is such a joke. I mean, they just come up with or, them so fast. Or the Passion can't... Translation. That's, that's the worst. Oh, boy. Although I did hear that Lifeway finally took it out and doesn't consider it a Bible anymore. <laughs> well, good for them. Yeah. Good for them. Now That's... in Hebrews 12, 11, it says, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them, which are exercised thereby. So when we're chastened, just thank God, just thank God. And, because that um, means he loves us. That's exactly right. Yep. And uh, just be zealous and repent. Mm -hmm. um, Revelation 3 and 20. Behold, 
I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, how could anybody that actually heard the voice of Christ, opened the door to him, and had communion and fellowship with Christ, how could you be lukewarm? I mean, how could you be lukewarm and indifferent? If you're lukewarm and indifferent, I don't know what kind of experience you've had, but it ain't this one. Because this one will set you on fire, and that fire will burn. It'll burn for decades. It'll keep you on fire until you die. And the longer you burn, the stronger the fire will get. You know, though, I I look back on on, uh, segments of my life, and, you know, this church here is wealthy. And so... I can just remember times when I had plenty and I had money. Things were going great. God was on my mind a little less than when things weren't so great or I, you know, was in the valley for a while. So I can kind of see how, just in my own life, how this church here, because they're rich and they've got everything going on, they think they've done everything by their own power and you know, yeah. they don't need help. They don't need because they didn't even take help from the government, like you said, when they yeah. had an earthquake. So, you know, maybe that's just how uh, lukewarm happens too. maybe your life is going so great and you got a great job and both of you pull in plenty of money and you just get lukewarm. You, you're doing all the work yourself and you're feeling good about yourself. And I mean, maybe that's part of it. Yeah. And you get to think that you did it all. And that you can do it all. And that's the deception of self-complacency. And that's that's what will take you down. Yep. And John Wesley had such a great comment on this verse in Revelation 3 and 20. I stand at the door and knock even at this instant while he is speaking this word. If any man open, willingly receive me. I will sup with him, refreshing him with my graces and gifts and delighting myself in what I have given. And he with me in life everlasting. And those words are as true now. John Wesley wrote that in the 1700s. It's as true this evening. If anyone will just open the door and believe, if we'll just turn our eyes upon Jesus and just get a glimpse, we'll be forever changed. And we'll never be lukewarm, not now nor evermore. In Revelation 3 and 21, the text says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Many promises to the overcomer. And as we have reiterated before, what is promised to the people that don't overcome is nothing. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. We discussed this in our last DOC in relationship to the key of David and the dispensationalist nonsensical argument that Christ is not now sitting upon the throne of David, as Acts chapter 2 clearly says. And some of them will even argue that Christ doesn't have a throne. And it sounds here like Jesus says, um, 
that he does, which he clearly says. So, I mean. Well, this is what's cool to me. This is just standing out. It's saying in my throne, not on my throne, in my yeah. throne. And, and his throne is in his father's throne. Yeah. Uh, so I can, that just puts imagery in my mind of, of it's so big. It, it'll like, it'll hold us all when, when we're all with him, we'll all just be in his throne together. Yeah. Which is uh, in turn all in the father's throne. Yeah. And you know, this is our fight of faith. Um, this is the trying of our faith, like pure gold, just to believe. And when you believe that, my goodness, to actually think of that, sitting with Christ and the Father in their throne. Can you imagine? And Jesus never said, interpret me, and you'll have eternal life. He said, believe. believe. And this is the trial of our faith, like pure gold. For everything that Satan does to Solly and denigrate Christ, we lift him up. And as we lift him up, there's going to be more and more people that are going to get a glimpse of the Savior and just one look, they're forever changed. And that's that's it. That their eyes of their understanding will be open to see the doctrine of Christ. And so many will not see and understand. We know that. But those that do it's it's worth it all and that's what we do we put out the truth we we preach faith in jesus christ in god's word and as the last verse of this epistle says he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches and there will be many that will have ears to hear and eyes that have the understanding opened that they can see. With all of my heart.